Hey team, welcome to the Professionally Offensive Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Cabrera. This is the spot where we provide raw, unfiltered insights from some amazing guests. Stand by, you're about to be offended in all the right ways. All right, team, welcome back to the podcast. We got a super special and personal episode for me today. I am here with the one and only Colonel Retired, Christopher Cassabry, or formerly known, I guess, or best known by me as Denali Six. Sir, good to have you on the show. Hey, man, it is, it is fantastic to be here. And Joe, I, I really appreciate the opportunity just to, number one, exchange ideas with you and to see you and and to see you kind of in your new element, right? I really, it's exciting to, to watch you today. Not that it wasn't great to watch you, you know, 10 years ago, but um, it's really exciting to see where, where you and Kelsey have come. It's, it's awesome. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's, it's an honor, and it's been one that, quite frankly, been waiting for quite some time to be able to do this thing. So this is one that's been brewing in all the right ways. Uh, at the same time, I think for our audience out there, you'll probably notice, I'll use the word, most of the time I'm not, you know, usually it's very first name basis, but I, I won't be able to help myself on this episode not to throw in a sir here and there, even though I know you don't really give a hoot about it anymore. What I found is, and I think it's a, hopefully a compliment, but what I, what I found is when you start, when you still use like former titles and stuff like that, it's just a sign of respect and it's just one that kind of brings us back to the moment that we've really kind of forged through fire, our relationship there. So for those that are listening out there, that's what it'll be. But let me give you just a, so you know what you're in store for. Let me just give you a quick rap sheet on this amazing individual here. And then we're going to dive right into it. So I think y'all are going to have a killer time just hearing about the thoughts and mindsets, not only of a combat commander and one that's reached the senior levels of that, but really also just somebody who's just a really good human in person and just kind of thinking through that. But Colonel Christopher Cassabry has, uh, and now doing really big and great things here, you know, uh, in the private sector space or in the government space and doing those things. But his life, I mean, really have done everything from rifle platoon leader all the way up to the highest form of command at the battalion and squadron levels. And then beyond that, working at the Pentagon and, and working in some really critical places and helping with things in Africa and really anything you can imagine that we've really paid attention to as a country here over the last 20 plus years, he's touched and been a part of. This is a Ranger Airborne qualified guy who's had multiple awards for uh, valor and just really great things that he's done in his time. I would also say a really great husband and family man. It's one thing that always struck me, even when we were serving together. It's just This wasn't just some guerrilla commander walking around just tough and beating drums. This was a guy who really understood people and understood the priority of his family. Uh, I will. The reason this episode is also special is because in this conversation is because this was my first what I would consider what we call in the Army the big boss, like the guy that I had an incredible guy, Aaron Pearsall, that I worked directly for, but his boss, which was you, um, it was really my first and also somebody that um, I could not have asked for a better mentor going into combat and learning these different things together. And what's really unique and cool about this episode right now is that I am actually in Alaska where it all started in this first unit, this, you know, where it all started. So Denali yeah. Six, call sign, sir. Good to have you on the show again. Did I miss anything? No, no. I, I appreciate uh, what I appreciate most is uh, the, the husband and, and father piece. All right. Because um, I love the Army. I, I love the Army. Um, but ultimately, you know, you're no longer in the Army. And, um, and I came into the army with my wife and I left the army with my wife and two kids. 
Um, and they all three still speak to me. So I think, <laughs> You know, you know, that's I, actually, I laugh a little bit, but that's actually a huge accomplishment. It's a hard life. It It is. I mean, for us, it was, uh, you know, 13 moves. Um, gosh, let me count. Um, one, two, you know, a couple of operational deployments. So, you know, peacetime deployments, um, four, four combat zone deployments, uh, a quick trip to Haiti to help them after a hurricane um, with, and a lot of, a lot of time in the field. So there was, I, I think one of the things that, I don't know, it struck me the most when I was thinking, I actually thought about it one day. Um, well, I thought about it while we were in Afghanistan. So our son, Patrick, started his first, his last last day of school, right? His first year, first day of his senior year in high school there in Eagle River. And I wasn't there. Um, which, when he went to his very first day of kindergarten at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I wasn't there either. Yeah. And I, was, I, was on the, I was on the Sinai Peninsula executing a peacekeeping mission between, you know, the, on the border of Egypt and Israel. And, and so that, that's one of those things. It just, it does make you realize, um, I, w- I don't think my family would change it. I hope they wouldn't. Um, I, I know I, I wouldn't change it. Um, but it, it was, it was quite a journey and we all grew and we all, I think we got, uh, we got, we got tighter as a family. And interestingly enough, while we were while we're tight, it's it's easy for us to kind of go away and then come back together, mm. um, because we know they know um, if there's ever anything they need, they can they can come back and get it. And and I know the same from the kids, right? Patrick and Elizabeth are, are fantastic, and of course our rock, you know, Teresa, um, you know, she never liked the Denali call sign because I would I made sure she understood the translation, yeah, right, which stands for the Great One. So I would, I would come home and refer to myself in the third person. The great one is looking for dinner. And you, can, and you know, Teresa, Joe, so, oh, yeah. you know, it always uh, end up uh, not good for me. It was like a bowl of cereal. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, a great partnership and a great relationship with life always keeps you humble and grounded. And so I, I tell folks often that I might be a lot of horsepower, but loose electricity without a good grounding rod is, is dangerous. And so I think that, uh, that's good. I know her for sure. And probably kept you that way too. And, 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 you know, one of the things I think is lost on a lot of people, you know, when we deployed, we took about 600, right? Yep. Um, but if you, if you say everybody had two parents, right. And some guys were married, probably about half and of the married, you know, about half of them had children. Right. And, and so they stayed in Alaska. So you had all the parents, most of them in the lower 48, right? And Teresa was, you know, not officially, but unofficially responsible for all those people through yeah. the family right now. And, and I tell her all the time, hey, I only had to worry about about 600. You know, you had to worry about close to 2,000, if not 3,000. Yeah. Spread, over, spread over the lower 48, um, separated from their families, you know, the young, young, young wives and husbands separated from their families still in Alaska with kids. I mean, if she got paid for what she did, if all the military wives got paid for what they did, our country would be like a, another trillion dollars in debt because <laughs> uh, they, they get off sky, they get off real cheap, right? Because all we do is give them a, you know, we give them a certificate and a, and a big hug and that's a, uh, that's about it. No, it can, you're absolutely right. It can make or break a great organization. I think that's something even on the private side of things. We often think about the sport of business or the act of being in whatever profession we're in. 
kind of stopping at the individual that is technically holding the badge and scanning into work every day. But the best organizations, and I think that is one thing that I learned in the service, is for better or for worse, all-encompassing. Yeah, and, and I think in the outside world, you know, in the civilian world, I've got to believe part of retaining talent, right, is is making sure that your workforce has the ability to achieve some level some level of balance. And it's it's never going to work out perfect, right? It, it never will. Yeah. But if they don't, I don't, I got to believe if people don't believe you care about them, right? Not just them and their production, but them as an individual, them as a member of the team, them as a part of a family, you know, separate and distinct from where they work. If they don't feel that valued across that spectrum, I got to believe, especially in this economy, in this day and age, they'll, they'll pick up and move. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I was probably going to save this for later, but since we're on this train of thought, why not? I think let's just let the momentum carry us. One of the things that I noticed in, when I first reported into Alaska and was getting acclimated with the unit there and just finished up ranger training and was moving there and getting, you know, yeah. getting settled in and stuff. I still remember, I think an email from, uh, Aaron Pearsall was like, Hey, we're looking forward to seeing you, but you better not show it without the tab. Otherwise I don't want to see you. And so, <laughs> no pressure there, right? No pressure there. Right. And so I, um, I remember showing up and remembering just very quickly understanding that I guess I had this vision of the big boss at, at this organization, Denali six, just because it was an airborne unit, it was Alaska, we were going to war. The brigade was called Spartan Brigade, one that was like birthed out of war and a need for it. I just assumed that the guy at the helm was not only going to be extremely intense, but very probably just to the point, almost just a razor blade in everything that he does. And I remember meeting you and being like, there was a calming force about your personality and one that, to be frank, really kind of threw me for a good loop. And, and I think for a lot of us too, can I ask like where, where and how did you, is that Christopher Casserby, the guy who just knew about caring for people was important or was that trial and error? Where, where was that personality trait coming from? I, I think a lot of it was learned. Um, a lot of it was learned from my dad. You know, my dad was a career army officer, but, but he was a, he was a chaplain. And oh, yeah, uh, I, I just, and he, I never, you know, I never met a person that not only just didn't respect my dad, but didn't like my dad. And, and so I learned you didn't have to be a jerk, right? You didn't have to be a jerk to, to be a good leader. And, and I, but I also grew, right? I developed as a leader. I was not, um, I was not the same leader as a lieutenant colonel, um, you know, when we served together that I was as a first lieutenant, second lieutenant, captain, or, or really even a, even a major. Um, and one of the things that, that I think I saw in several good leaders was the ability to anchor an organization. You, your organization is going to go through a lot of trials and tribulations. And we knew we were, right? I mean, we knew we were going. I, when I worked in the basement of the Pentagon, one of the things I had in my hand was the infamous patch chart, right, that showed when everybody was deploying, what brigades were deploying, and where they were deploying. I knew before I, you know, before I even left, heck, man, right after I came out on that command list, I knew we were, I was going to be leading this, uh, the battalion to war. Um, and I knew that, you know, war in, in, on its face is, is just total chaos, yeah. right? Might be incredibly long periods of boredom, right? But ultimately, there's, a, there's, this, there's 
was just sheer chaos. Um, and I've always felt that a leader needs to be able to anchor the organization to provide, like when the tornado is just swirling all around you, if, if the if the organization doesn't know, hey, look, these are the things I absolutely must do, regardless of the circumstances, that, you know, that that's one of the key elements, I think, of being a combat leader, is making sure everybody knows, hey, look, when push comes to shove, when the chips are down, when bullets are flying, when guys are getting hurt, right? Um, regardless of all that, I've got to go back to this. And if you, and if you can't, if you can't calmly work through almost any kind of problem, now there's always going to be emotion involved, right? But if your persona in the easiest of times is one of one that generates a, a, a concern, fear, worry, I, I just I don't see a I don't see that as a great way to build a resilient organization, right? And because if I can't if, if anybody's afraid to come to me with a problem, I can't help solve the problem. And to me, being approachable, uh, being calm. Now, I, I know, you know, you and I had events and other people, you know, in the squadron had events where, I mean, they'd rather not approach me, right? <laughs> there is a switch. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and so it's not like everything's always good and I can't get upset. Yeah. But... I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever yelled at anybody in the squad. There's, there's no, there's no real point to that. No, I remember it almost being a superpower you had. I think none of us really wanted to, it's like disappointing your father. Like you never want to turn that switch because it's, it just don't want to see it. In a lot of ways, there's a lot of power in that. You have so many organizations that I've witnessed that the leader is just this ball of fire all the time which might from the outside looking in seem interesting to look at and definitely entertaining at best but i think that it doesn't cre it creates anxiety in the organization that's right. one thing that i remember for a team that was gearing up for war very quickly i remember that being something front of mind i am curious like from a mindset perspective i remember sitting down i think he had pulled all his all his junior leaders in all the platoon leaders in at one point before we deployed I remember something you had said that stuck with me. And so I am kind of curious, like how you've always balance the duty of an officer who's got the mission in their hand and the American people to answer to also with also the human who doesn't want to see their, their guys yeah. get hurt or killed or whatever. I remember we were all sitting there and I think you asked a very simple question and went along the lines of, you asked like, what is, what is the objective? What is your, your person? What is the objective for you all after and during and before this deployment? I remember one of the officers, uh, we all kind of sat with that question for a while, then just trying to digest it. And I think one of the officers said, bring all my guys home. And I remember a couple of us kind of looking up and going, yeah, maybe that's a, that sounds like a good answer. You know, maybe doesn't, you know, it, it sounds like a, a good human thing to say. And I remember the thing you said back, you go, you're as much as that would be something that we would all like and love to do. That is not necessarily the correct objective for you to have as an officer because the mission is in your hand. And unfortunately that does mean that you will have to make calls sometimes where that can't be the governing thing. How did you balance, how did, in just your personal life, how did you balance those things? Um, or as a leader? So when I, yeah. When I first came in the army, we used to have, there was a slogan, the saying, um, mission first, people always. Right. Um, 
And we are, we are a mission first, the Army, right, is a mission first organization because there is no second place in combat, right? That's right. I think as you get older, as, you're, as you deal with uh, more responsibility, as you're around the organization, you start, to, you start to think about it in terms of risk to force, read that to be the organization, the unit, regardless of echelon, risk to mission. Um, you, you have to be, you have to understand maybe not every single patrol, maybe not every single engagement is one worth developing, right? If it didn't write and it's not an absolute, no question mission failure kind of event, well, let's, let's break contact. We don't feel like we're in a position where we can be successful without the, the, least amount of risk to the force, then let's, let's break contact. Let's reset. We, we're going to live to fight another day, right? We'll, we'll get them again. Right. And, and, uh, and so that was kind of, that's, I always knew we were, look, you know, I lost my first soldier in you know, November 20 or 26, November, 1999. All right. Uh, you never forget. Um, but you also know, just like, when, you know, in a peacetime army, you never want to say, well, if we go to war. Because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, right? So everybody in your organization will go to war. The question is, are you going to be responsible for them when they're there? But you're damn sure responsible for them to prepare them for war tomorrow. Um, and, and I think that, uh, I think... One of the things you just try and do is embed in your leaders. We do have a requirement. We have a mission. But let's let's realize that's not a you know every single you know engagement, every single patrol, every single you know key leader engagement. If it doesn't feel right, and it's not going to bring you know the end, right? It's not going to be that key to victory then reset, think, think about it, right? Think through it. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Mm. I, mean, I know you've heard that before. Oh yeah. And a lot of different aspects of life, right? Um, and part of my question was to make sure guys thought about that, right? And, and, and it was also, it was also to make them remember, hey, there will be, there will be a time after combat. Right. And and God willing, that time after combat is a lot longer than the time any of us would have ever spent in combat. Mm -hmm. And you had to be good with what you did. You you had to be because, I mean, we know people, right? We've got a lot of friends, both you and I, um, that have struggled after the fact. And, And those struggles are very deep and very personal. And a lot of them go back, goes back to decisions they made or didn't make. And that's why I want to, that's why I really asked the question because I knew somebody was going to say, well, I want to bring everybody back. Well, is that really, is that really the requirement that, is that, that's what we want to do. But is that, A, is it really feasible? And if we do, do did we accomplish our mission? Because, um, 
well, we were a combat organization, right? We our, yeah. our mission in life was to gain and maintain contact with the enemy and to destroy them. Um, and we were going to do that through violence of action. Um, so I think, uh, I, so it was, it was kind of, it was, a, it was to think about where they were going, the decisions they were going to have to make. Were they ready to make those decisions? Um, and then to plant the seed, hey, I'm going to have to live with every decision I make. Right. And, yeah. and look, everybody always looks to the platoon leader. Right. I mean, everybody does. And if something goes wrong, who are they going to blame? Well, they're they're going to blame the leader. Why do you shoot that guy? Well, he told me to. He ordered me. I mean, and ninety nine percent of the time, they're absolutely correct, and, and everything was right. Um, but when when something goes wrong, a lot of times people need somebody to blame. Whether it's whether it's wrong because somebody one of their good buddies got hurt or killed, God forbid, or just something didn't pan out right. And, and as, as the juniorist leader, you know, as the juniorist officers in the squadron, as the guys that really got it done, um, I need everybody to understand that they're going to have to live with those decisions. So you needed to think, hey, before, during, and after, because you know, there is a continuum that will never end. And um, Yeah, now I remember. Life, life is not a singular event, right? Life is a, is a timeline. Now, Father Time wins every single race. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I remember, I, you know, it's, you say about it being a continuum. I, I didn't appreciate that until probably start to appreciate that to probably after war, after that yeah. first deployment there. I, I remember getting on the bird, and my right hand man, who's who's now Sergeant Major Tate, said to me, he "Goes well now we begin part two of the deployment, sir." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he goes, "Just trust me, you'll see." And he was right. The weight that was, yeah. you think you're done once you kind of rack up your ammo and your your stuff, and the new unit comes in. Um, it only just began in some ways, right? About what we had to endure after that. That's right. And it's, uh, and, and how are, how are younger guys supposed to know that? Well, really they're not, right? Exactly we, right. We, yeah. we, we <laughs> teach you, we train you, we develop you to do certain things and think beyond those. And, and, I, and you're not automatons. None of us are. And I don't believe we ever approached it like that, but we really wanted you to focus on the mission, right? And, it is hard to say, oh, okay, hey, yeah, now, now we got a part two, but Sergeant Major Tate, love him, you know, and uh, he, was, he was dead on, wasn't he? No, he was, and I mean, you learned so much from those above you and those, you know, technically that work for you, but I think these kinds of things are, are stuff that I always look back with fond memories. I really do dig what you said about you got to be good with your decisions, and that was one thing that I remember in that organization at the beginning. I didn't really appreciate until later that, the leadership there and the culture established did give us time to really think about, I mean, you have war and it kind of, we say things go at the speed of war. Sometimes you got to be able to make a decision, but generally speaking, we've, we had a culture that gave us time to sit with and think about what we're doing. And I will say that's not commonplace. I, I think about just even the questions our leaders would ask us. I remember you did it many a times in train up. I remember uh, Aaron Pearsall doing that many a times in train up, just saying, well, why do you, can you explain to me why, why would you think that, why do you want to do it this way? Or why are you thinking about it? Now, at the beginning, as a young officer, as a young leader, you think you're getting, you know, criticized. Like, well, hold on, okay, maybe I got to rethink. He's questioning. But you all just wanted to, I mean, I hope this yeah. resonates. Tell me if this is true. I'm hoping I'm cracking the code here. But y'all were saying, I just want to know if this officer thought about their decision. That's right. That's right. And, and look, if it, 
the decision, whether it's peacetime or war, whether it's training or combat, the decision's already been made. You've already executed it, right? right? I can't undo it. So that was always my favorite question. Hey, what were you thinking? Because there was a reason you decided to do something, to take an action, to give an order, right? To not give an order. I mean, there was a reason why. And if I didn't like it or I didn't think it was right, then I, I needed to understand how you got to that point, right? Because I can, I can fix it the next time or I can modify it the next time. Maybe not fix it, right? Yeah. Uh, or if you made a good decision, I just need to make sure it wasn't sheer damn luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to make sure it was on purpose. Right. But there was rash. I mean, there was good rationale because, well, but you know, every decision is different. Combat is certainly not a closed system, right? It's certainly not a closed loop. And there is no template. You know, we have certain, we do have certain templates. We do have, you know, the battle drills, right? You know, universally understood. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Very little leader, very few leader decisions required, right? Um, but those times in combat are very few and far between. Yeah. And, and knowing what a person is thinking and how they're processing all the information around them that's coming from the environment, from the enemy, from its, from their own unit, both higher and lower. Right. Um, I think that's, that's why we always ask that because look, if, if combat's anything, it's a thinking man's game. Mm -hmm. And, um, and thinking under stress is, is, uh, is, it's, it is right. I mean, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's really difficult. And I think, well, there we go again with that word. I believe that one of the things that made not just our organization successful, but that has made our army successful for quite some time is the focus we put on training and leader development. Um, because, yeah, you can, you know, if, you're, if your rifle shoots further than somebody else's, you know, that's all, that's all great, right? But, but combat is in, is a, in war is a, human, a uniquely human endeavor, right? Um, and it is a it is a clash of wills, and it is a uh, it is it is something that requires a lot of creativity and a lot of learning. I mean, instant instantaneous learning, right? Action, reaction, counteraction. And you've got to be you've got to understand. You know, number one, three strikes and you're not out. That just means you've made you've made three things. You've done three things that maybe hadn't gone exactly the way you wanted them to go, and. If you can't think, then you can't you can't really truly lead because you're there is no template, right? There is no template. There is no one, two, three in combat, and you know that better um, better than anybody else. Yeah, no, I it's uh, the crucibles and the real classroom experience you get from that is equally something that's hard and sometimes difficult to digest. At the same time, not one I would trade for the world. I mean, there's so much of who I am today that came yeah. from those moments in fire, which leads me to ask you when, I think a lot of folks would like to know, just as Denali Six in that in that chair, can you describe one just very tactically, what is that job? You know, I know you're the boss, but at the same time, folks kind of would, I mean, I think we, yeah. we have this mystique about the commander in the chair and what that is. What is that job? I, I think the essence of command is... It boils down to ensuring that all the subordinate organizations 
properly trained, properly resourced, and put at the right place in the right time in order to be successful. Right? You know, we the army is a very, you know, hierarchical, very much of a pyramid kind of a organization. Um, but I think we kind of teach the I think we kind of teach it, especially to our young officers, backwards, right? Remember the one of the first conversations we had is said, hey, sketch out what your platoon looks like, just draw me the wire yep. diagram chart, right? And of course you had the platoon and you headquarters, the headquarters, and then you had your two sections and then the teams inside the sections. And I said, do you, you think, and, and I said, and you think that's right? And you're like, yes, sir. Cause you all did because it was technically it was right, but it was kind of like a little bit of a lesson, right? I said, well, so you're up here and everybody else is down here. Yes. Well, then what did we do? We flip that upside down. Yep. Right. Your number one responsibility was to your sections and to your teams and to your soldiers. And your number one responsibility was to ensure they were properly trained and put in the right place at the right time to accomplish their mission. Right? And hopefully that results in everybody coming home. Um, so I, I think that's what, that's what I struggle with on a daily basis, right? Um, how do you get, I mean, cause we couldn't collect Intel everywhere all the time. You know, we weren't all knowing or we'd have, you know, we, things would have been, been different, right? Sure. Who got priority of fires from the one five fives? Who got who got the priority um, of air support? Okay, we could only move you know we could only move so far so fast you know on foot you know in the Humvees. Who who got who got to execute the air assault? Right? Which targets were the most important to hit? Um, and so trying to align all the all that uh, all that was done to put everybody in the right place at the best possible position of advantage um, always remembering though the enemy got a vote right always always got a vote i was telling somebody the other day i think what i've carried really probably probably sounds a little bit uh dark but one of the things i've carried into business is you know i was constantly always thinking i remember learning this as a young officer as a young cadet even at west point where how Think about the vote the enemy does have. So I would constantly be thinking, like, how would I kill myself right now, right? How would I go ahead and get me right now? And actually, it's helped me from how would competitors look at this? How would I, you know, these contingencies that you should plan for where that's not always come in place? And so I do think that that mindset and that level of thinking has always served me, although it keeps you on all the time. Yeah. Well, and and remember, you know, what's paragraph one of the operations order? You know, it's it's a situation, but one A— is the enemy. That's right. Right? And and how do we teach you to set in a defense? Well, you establish, okay, hey, this is where I think my engagement area is going to be, but then you go back and you walk, if possible, right? Yep. Certainly wasn't possible for us. But if possible, you know, you, you go back and you look at the terrain from the enemy's perspective. Well, would he go there? How would he avoid that location? Um, and you're right. All the things that, you know, the enemy gets a vote. The, 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 the terrain gets a vote. The weather gets a vote. Um, and, and all you can do there is, is do your best, right? But if you don't think about what the other person is doing, right, what their habits are, what their tendencies are, you know, you're wrong. And, you know, we also remember we teach the idea of a relative combat power analysis. You list all your enemy's strengths and all his weaknesses, all your strengths and all your weaknesses, and you attempt to, you know, obviously stack the deck in your side with the plan that you come up with. 
Mm -hmm. right? Uh, because, you know, there's an art and a science, and, and unfortunately most of combat, yeah, there's a lot of science in combat, but science, you know, art is going to win over science every single time. How did so think, think in man's game. No, absolutely. So that leads me into the thought that I have about just your intuition as a commander, which I know is extremely important, not only mm -hmm. one that's overtly taught, but in a scenario where you had, you know, we had outposts all over the place, different levels of coordination from, you know, do Apaches go here? Is there a cover go there? Where do we want to station yeah. medevacs? Like all these things. When things seemed, and maybe they didn't. So my question is when things seem relatively equal, what were the things intuitively that helped guide you on, oh, all right, I'm, it's never the decisions that are easy. It's always the ones that seem relatively the same. Okay. Now you got to figure out which one is the best. Oh, man. Um, Part of that came came back to knowing that you know our subordinate commanders and platoon leaders and their their first sergeants and the platoon sergeants, right? Because those, especially in Afghanistan, I mean that was a small unit war, right? I mean, think how many times you conducted patrols and think how many times I was not there, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, our connection was primarily through radio or through Captain Pearsall. Um, so some of it is knowing your, your own folks and understanding not just what their strengths and weaknesses are, but where that organization is at and how much stress has that organization been under and how much, um, how much strain is there or if they're on a good run, hey, how much, look, because, you know, um, confidence breeds, you know, or competence breeds confidence, which also brings complacency. Yeah. Right. So how do you, how do you make sure if things are going really well, the guys just don't get complacent and think, Oh, Hey, we're all that. We got this down. Um, our stuff doesn't stink. Um, so really it, it came back to really kind of taking a hard look at the leadership team and how they were doing, uh, at echelon, right. Um, looking at the terrain and tying that to the weather, like there were some, like, I don't know, I remember one night somebody had to go look for a UAV that went down and, you know, around 10,000 feet, and it was really kind of cold and snowy. And, um, you know, so the weather was really crappy, and and uh, and somebody made a good decision on the ground, right? Hey, we, we've, we've gone about as far as we can go with this one, boss. And I, I knew you'd make that call, right? I knew you'd go as, as, as far as you could go and then just say, okay, sir, I, I can't, I can, we just can't. Um, that's why I didn't have any hard heartaches with you starting major take taking that mission, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought I didn't like it, right? But um, but I think it goes back to understanding your people and and the organizations they're leading and where where they're at at that point in time. Again, with respect to not only themselves, but but the enemy and their experience. And man, sometimes it was like, okay, well, who's on leave? Who's not on leave? Yeah. Who's on the patrol? Who's not on the patrol? Um. But, you know, I had a great team around me at the, at the squadron headquarters that helped, you know, I, I, I think there were very, very few decisions I made in a vacuum. Because when you, when you do that, you're not going to have all the information available, right? Um, and I think that's just a bad way to go. But to me, it was, it was really, it went back to, look, I knew on a, in a one-on-one -on -one match, we'd have beaten any Taliban organization they could have thrown at us any Haqqani network organization they could have thrown at us um, 
on a, on a completely level playing field, right? If everybody carried the exact same weapons, everything else, we'd have, we'd have kicked their ass, right? But, but nothing there was ever equal, mm. right? Never was. No. So it, 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 it went back, but in our asymmetric advantage, we're our leaders, we're our soldiers, right? And, and so it, so all those, all those decisions you had to balance always went back to um, the leaders and the organization and, and the status of what they were. And not just like, okay, they have, were they fully loaded up on ammo? You know, did they have enough water? I mean, those are, those are important, right? But it, it was the intangibles, the intangible pieces of the organization that um, they only got by spending time with them yeah. and physically seeing them and walking with them and again, asking them, Hey, what were you thinking? Right. <laughs> Trust me, the boss ain't trying to get you on it. He literally just wants to, I think this is refreshing to hear. I think that yeah. you, you think about somebody who is sitting in your chair at that time could very easily and objectively say, I don't have time to get to learn the different, you're almost somebody who's a commissioner running several different types of NFL teams and have to understand their strengths and weaknesses based on who they're playing today or who you think they're playing today. And that's something that's always refreshing to hear that even at that level, the, the folks that want to be as professional as they can and do the best they can yeah. are taking an investment in learning the ingredients. Yeah. And, and, you know, but Joe, I learned, I know you say you learned a lot, but as the, as the battalion commander, as a squadron commander, I learned infinitely more. Mm. Um, I, I learned so much from, from, from all walks, right? And I just didn't learn from the majors or the, or the captains, right? I learned an incredible amount, um, you know, from some of our newest guys, you know, cause I, I, you know, me, I would ask, I would ask some crazy questions. I, you know, like, hey, why, you know, you know, you, you would not believe some of the looks I got, you know, you're sitting there in Afghanistan, just kind of hanging out with a kid, maybe, you know, after he ate chow or something, you know, hey, why did you join the army? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, so what are you talking about? So, well, I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, you knew you were coming here, right? Well, yeah, I kind of thought, so why, you know, because I think the why is just such an incredibly important thing. Um, but also, you know, learned a lot about our profession. I just didn't learn a lot about individual people. I learned a lot about our profession, you know, how to, how to, how to plan better. Right different things to think about. Um, and I, and I learned that some of the army processes that we, you and I kind of take for granted were incredibly important, you know, like the after action or doing those after action, reviews, those, those post-op reports, reading those, talking to you guys about those. And look, I, I had an engagement with one of the other troop commanders, not yours. Um, and he, he kind of really came at me pretty hard and it was about, um, the speed at which I, I cleared fires and, and I approved his fires, right? And he, he, he intimated, and, and upon reflection, of course, I got, you know, I kind of got frustrated with him. Sure. And then, of course, I had to go down, back down to his CP and talk to him because he was right. I, I had been too slow. I had asked too many questions, and that gave the illusion that I didn't trust him. And, and that wasn't true, but, but it absolutely, it changed the way it changed my thought process in a good way. 
right? And, and some of that involved a little bit of a risk because I was trying to get a little more information, right? Just wanted to make sure because he's the guy in contact. Sometimes that guy in contact, you can't necessarily see the forest for the trees, right? And, and I never did that again. And luckily, that, that speed of not getting the fires cleared fast enough, it didn't result in any of our, any casualties for us, right? Yeah. Thank God. Um, but I, I went back and I, and I told him, I said, hey, look, I really appreciate that. And, um, and you were right. So, it, you know, yeah, you learned a lot. And I think a lot of us, but all of us learned a lot. If you, as a leader, if you don't figure out ways to learn from your organization, you're not, not only are you not going to be successful in the long term, your, your organization is not going to be successful either. No, absolutely. You can, um, I remember how powerful I used to watch. One of the things I miss about the service is actually something that has nothing to do with the act of being a warrior. Has every, I miss the, the, the chuckles and the chimes that you would hear from your troopers as you would like walk through a motor pool or walk back as a gun line or whatever. And I remember the power of humor and like how important it was to Tate and I used to talk about how in a lot of ways that was the only thing we had to hold on to sometimes in some situations, just something to laugh about because it was so hard. And so, you know, whatever we were doing, the decisions we had to make, the terrain we had to navigate and, um, you learn from it because the people who were the best at it were those privates to specialists that just had the funniest oh. stuff to talk about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, seeing how I think at that time, what was I like? 42, 41, 42. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it was certainly a different level of humor. I'm like, I do remember this. I mean, this is pretty fun. Uh, but to me, that's a that's a source of that's a that's a classic example of resiliency, right? Hey, can I, regardless of how bad things are, right? Can I find can I find something to be happy about, right? And sometimes all you need is that ten to fifteen seconds to kind of recharge and and help you refocus and realize, okay, yeah, it does suck, but it doesn't suck that bad. Yeah, when you're thinking about. Um, thought process and holding on to things or figuring out what to prioritize. I know probably one of the most critical things that a commander can get over the radio is troops in contact, right? Or an MIA, KIA potential. What were the things when you were sitting in that seat? Do you kind of remember the order of things you'd think about? You know, what were the things going through your mind when you would hear not just a normal situation report? You know, again, I'd go back to, okay, who is it? Hmm. Who, who is in contact and then and then I would you know like if I was if I was back in RCP right at the squadron and then kind of back in my little office area you know I had all the radios remoted into my my computer right um, and and it was really it was, a, it was the, their voice right I mean even if they were like giving this report like the communist horde is crossing the, you know, crossing the hill and they're bearing down on us. As long as he was calm about it, right? And he could and and he could talk through, hey, you know, here here is the situation and here here is what I'm doing, here's what I think I need, and here's what I'm gonna most importantly, what I'm gonna do next, right? If they were doing that, I, I wasn't too worried. Yeah. Uh, but you remember the green on blue, obviously we had up at Dicey, right? I do, of course. Sure. Uh, I, I would never, 
I, I, I was back in my little cubby hole, right? And, um, and I will never forget the, the transmission. It was chaos main is a chaos x-ray. They're shooting at us. They're shooting at us. And then they drop the hand light. I, that was a time. There was no, I, there was no question that something really bad was going on. Right. That, uh, that one could argue, you know, we weren't, um, I don't want to say we weren't prepared for, right. I don't want to, I don't want to take away anything that those, 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 those men and women did on, on that out, on that cop that day, that patrol base. But it, that's, and I knew the leader on the radio, right. And when, when he said it like that, when he said that, I mean, I, we just, we just sprung into action. Yeah. Because we knew things were bad, um, but it, for me it was it was how how was the leader processing the situation at hand? Yeah, I mean even with an even with an IED strike, which generally, you know, we didn't have too many complex ambushes where an IED strike followed, you know, with heavy small arms fire. You know, we we kind of we really didn't have that many IED strikes in the grand scheme of life. Um, we had more small arms contact and oh, yeah. and things like that. At least from my perspective, right? Um, so, as as long as as long as the leader in charge was clearly communicating, right? I knew everything was going to be okay on the ground because I knew we would get to it, right? One way or the other, yeah. Through through artillery, mortars, attack aviation, the QRF, you know, just launching another an unscheduled patrol. I, I, you know, so it go again, it goes back to, it goes back to the people. It goes back to trust in your training. It goes back to, have we developed leaders at Echelon? Every single Echelon, right? Yeah. Everybody is a leader. And the question is, who are you leading? And are you leading up or are you leading down? Right. And, uh, and you got to know so. your people. I and mean, it's such a powerful statement. I remember that day as well. And for audience who doesn't know, that is when a friendly force, a partner force actually turns on you and, begins to to uh to start taking out somebody who you thought would be a friend instead of a foe uh, which is a very difficult mental and actual physical process to endure and i remember the the communication piece just to add to what you said sir i remember i remember the situation i still remember aaron pearsall after we got back i was like hey you weren't worried because it was firing all over the radio and everything else and he goes nah man i could tell your voice he goes, yeah, yeah. He, had that. he goes, maybe step away from the 50 cal next time so I can actually hear you a little better. But otherwise, yeah, I could tell with your, you know, even with your crazy accent, man, I could tell that you were okay. He goes, I could just, I just knew you. He goes, but I remember that day at Dicey. So I remember we we're actually in the mountains doing a patrol. Um, and I remember getting that same radio transmission through. And I remember looking at Tatum being like, that doesn't sound good. Like you could just tell that doesn't sound good. Like there's something about that. And we, we were enduring firefights all the time. And there was something about that tone of voice that was way different. It was incredibly different. And, and again, but that comes from, that just comes from spending so much time together. Right. Yeah. From, from growing to know each other, um, on a very personal and an intimate level, because look, no leader wants to, project fear right no leader wants to project concern or worry um so when they aren't worried about projecting that and it, and it comes through anyway you know that's when you know look it's a really it's a bad it's a bad situation all hands on deck we need to start figuring we need to help them figure out the problem right we don't need to question 
We don't need to second guess it. We need to help get that leader and that organization into a position where they can kind of get their footing back, right? You know, reestablish that stance. You know, first, foremost, and always security, right? Yeah. And um, and so I think that was, uh, yeah, that's that's man, that's probably the 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 hardest transmission I've ever heard, right? And I've heard a lot of bad ones, and um. And, you know, you've had to make some split-second decisions. Like, the flip side of, of uh, knowing something was going wrong, like when that, uh, you know, when Salerno got hit by the V-bit. Yeah. You know, literally, me and my guys, right, we had just left Salerno. Literally, our vehicles were parked right where that V-bit came in. Wow. And I'm convinced to this day... And I know I, I'm convinced this day they were tar- they were because you can go on YouTube you can type in Fob Salerno Vbid yeah. and you can see it and um, and they were targeting the channel hall and we were parked in a in a holding area right up against the outer wall of, of the of the fob and they and and I I was running late and the guys wanted to eat they were like hey sir we can still make it to the channel hall. I'm like no we got work to do. So, <laughs> Was we'll we'll eat later, and um, and so we leave, and about the time you know we kind of get all the way out of the fob and we're moving down another uh, hardball road. Man, that's when the V-bit came in. It shook it shook our MRAP, and we were about we were about straight distance. We were a little over two kilometers away. I really thought that a helicopter had crashed. I thought a helicopter had crashed into another helicopter or something, and then the net starts to come alive, and they're like, "Sir, what do you want to do?" I'm like, and this goes back to Ranger School. I swear to God, this goes back to Ranger School. <laughs> the things that haunt us for those yeah. letter tab. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, sir, do you want to go back? And I'm like, no. I said, because the last thing you want to try and do is re-enter forward friendly lines in contact. Oh, that's so dang on true. So hard, but so dang on true. It, it, it sucked. As a human, it's it horrible. Sucked. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and, 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 uh, and Vincent Ellis, you know this. I mean, that's when Vincent got killed, right? Yep. Yes, sir. Um, and, but I knew, I was like, okay, look, you got like an infantry battalion there. I mean, they had more than enough there to repel the assault. But it, was, it just felt like such a chicken shit thing to do, <laughs> right? I'm like, sorry. I mean, I'm not trying to be. No, it's but the it, truth. And, I, and when I got back to battalion, you know, of course, I dropped off, you know, I, I'm listening to the brigade net and I dropped off the brigade net and I went back to the, went back to the squadron net and I, you know, so I called, you know, then, you know, then John Geis, I'm like, Hey, look, I mean, everybody hundred percent secure. Right. And, um, when I got back, I, I talked to, to John, I was like, Hey, I really, I really did not. I, I'm not sure I did the right thing. He was, Oh, absolutely not. sir. you absolutely did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Because everybody, and that, you know, the thing there is everybody always needs, everybody needs reinforcement, right? Everybody needs somebody to, to kind of help them realize that they, they made the right decisions. And, and I think that's, I think that's true regardless of your organization, regardless of what industry you're in, um, you know, the, the, the leader, right? If there is, if there really is this, this mythical beast known as the leader, they need, they need, you know, some, uh, they need some support too. And it's not yes man support, right? It's 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 like I'll just I'll just use uh, I'll just say Bravo Six. It's like when Bravo Six came to me and said, "Hey, you know, 
I really feel like you didn't trust me. You know, you, you know, you were not clearing fires fast enough for me. Um, and I was like, but, uh, and, but I do, I think it's, I do think it's important. No, understanding the people, your organization, knowing the leaders, of your organization, um, very important. And sometimes, you know, we have people in our organization that are designated to care for others, right? For us, the medics, yeah, the physician's assistant, the surgeon, the chaplain, um, to some degree, the sergeant major and the first sergeants, but to a much lesser degree, right? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but, you know, one, a couple of things, a couple of people I'd always go back to and check in on were the chaplain and the, the PA and the medics. Because they were always caring for everybody else. And, and I think inside your organization, you always have to ask yourself, um, who's caring for the caregiver? Right? And, and that also goes back to talking, you know, we kind of kicked it off with about families and how important families are. Um, not just to the individual, but I would argue to the organization. And, and how do you ensure families are being cared for? Because it's not always a raise, right? It's not always more money. Um, and, and I think, you know, having never honestly, I mean, look, I worked landscaping, I worked at Walmart, I worked at McDonald's, and I've been in the Army. Okay. I mean, so all real jobs. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well, so for anybody that's thinking I've done anything else, right? And, you know, this, anything I say is like an absolute must do. Well, just that comes with, there's your warning, right? Hey, this only worked in those kind of organizations. (laughs) But, but I do, I think, I think it's important to understand, you know, who cares for the caregiver and, um, and every organization has them. They just might not have the title, Right. Every, every organization has that person when that people will gravitate to, to kind of talk to, unload, you know, concerns, worries, troubles. And ultimately that person has to have somebody to go to as well. And, and for organizational um, reasons and for individual reasons, I think, I think it's important for leaders to understand that. Yeah. It's one that we miss. You're right often. And it's uh there's a lot of weight and burden on that individual, especially when they're, I think about, you mentioned medics. I think that's an interesting uh, job actually, because their, their job in a lot of ways is quite the opposite of all of us. Now, you know, and they're there to save lives, uh, which is something that unfortunately doesn't always happen. And that can be a weight that a lot of us, especially as leaders can chalk up to, Hey, you know, you did your best, but for them, that can be an extreme weight to carry. And one that I think about often. It, yeah. And, you know, it's one thing to take a life, but you can usually pretty easily justify that because they were trying to kill me. Right. Right. Um, it's another thing to fail to save a life. And, and whether, whether that person, whether, whether that person could have been saved or not is irrelevant to the matter. Yeah. No, it's actually, they, yeah. They just know they didn't. That's it. And they, they have, yeah, they almost all become like these ship counselors on every single team. You know, they just are by like they didn't get trained to do that. They just become, hey, let me go talk to Doc real quick. And That's you're right. absolutely right. Sir. And he's, you know, mine, uh, Doc Mixon, incredible woman. He's definitely all the guys have made imprints on me, but yeah. for sure I remember his even his demeanor in those situations. But you have yeah. to have this, you know, cool is under pressure, but also this they probably have one of the biggest hearts in the organization because and it's one of those things that later on I think about just the weight that these guys carry 
you know, with them to be able to do that. So anytime I meet even an old soldier that was a medic in World War II or Vietnam, it's a different level of respect I have for them. I mean, it is extreme. Absolutely. So, sir, like I, um, God, we can talk, I can talk many, many hours and we might need to get you back on here, but I got a few more things I want to ask you there and then, you know, we'll go. I'll try and, I'll try and be more concise. No, don't be. I think this has been unreal. Uh, you said something earlier about just knowing your people, trusting your commanders. If whether it's private sector, wherever you're at in this world, what were the things that outside of just getting to know your people, but were there specific traits that you remember? I mean, heck, I'll just be very personal here. Was there certain things that a Captain Aaron D. Pearsall would, you know, would say or do? Was there a demeanor about him that just kind of gave you calm also about knowing that this person was going to do the very best they can and have the right stuff, make the right call? Well, first off, probably one of the best combat leaders I have ever worked with. Won't debate that. Absolutely. Just. Freaking rock star, man. He was. Yeah. He was. And, and. But Aaron was, is, right, is a person who you don't have to force responsibility on, right? He just naturally assumed responsibility. And I knew the buck stopped with him, right? He wasn't going to, he wasn't going to deflect. If something had gone wrong, he wasn't going to deflect. He wasn't going to make an excuse. He was going to be factual about what had happened. And even if, even if all the laws of nature lined up against him, he would have said, but sir, I'm responsible and I should have done better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and Aaron was, look, he was smart. He was intelligent. He, 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 uh, you could tell his, his subordinates trusted him. Right. Um, so the, the things that the, Number one thing I look for is this person, does he willingly seek out responsibility? Does he assume responsibility when really he probably or she probably shouldn't be doing that? Because they recognize, hey, look, well, I think about think about all, all the guys in Ranger School that failed patrols because somebody fell asleep. Not the leader, right? That's exactly right. But the lead. Yeah. Right? And, and, and that's just culturally for us, that's very important. And But I also knew... But he wasn't going now. He'd go back and take corrective action, right? Because generally, normally, if there is a failure inside an organization, it's not any one person's fault. Yeah. Right? But it's a it's a series of it's a series of things that either got overlooked, not checked, not not done at the right time, not done to the right standard. Um, and and so the other thing I, I generally looked at is okay when people do fail because it's not. It's not, again, it's not if, it's when. How, how did they approach that failure? How, what, did they, what did they do and what was their demeanor in terms of, you know, the retraining piece? And we've talked about this before. You know, the Army, although we don't do it nearly enough, we, at least we try and, hey, if we don't do something right, we, we do the task again under the same conditions to achieve the right standard, right, to achieve the standard. So generally, I, I looked for good communicators that sought responsibility, that didn't deflect, right, and and that would go back and logically, here we go again, think through why what why the failure occurred and and what was in their in their ability to to fix, and that and Pearsall's personality and just his you know 
just one of the best combat leaders, right? Oh yeah, he had his balance of he knew he'd give a hoot about you. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm gonna say it's probably a testament to you too, sir. I think that doesn't just stem from one guy, but it stems from a continuum of culture all the way at the top. And I remember feeling, um, God, I mean, he was he was definitely a hard leader. I mean, one that demanded oh, yeah. a ton from us. But I worried about meeting his standards. <laughs> yeah, the, he was intense. <laughs> but at the same time, I remember. He had this, I mean this very kindly, um, but I don't have any other way to describe it. He had this short memory though about like, very, and yeah. here's a better way to say it. Use a Christian principle here. He's very, like he forgave quickly. He was one of the, and he didn't even need to forgive. He was just yeah. like, did you fix it? Cool. And he would never hold it against you over your head. Nothing. It was like on to the next thing. Well, exactly. You you cannot, well, some of it goes out. I, I agree with the, with the Christian principle aspect of it, 100%. Um, but some of it also, it's kind of your frame of view or your, your frame of mind or your, or in some respect, do you think people just wake up every day intending to fail? No. Right. right. This, did this young paratrooper, did he or she say, you know what? I'm screwing this up today. <laughs> yeah. Pro- probably not. Now, do they put enough planning and effort into preparing for the event? Maybe not. Right. Right. But I don't think they, I think that was due to a lack of experience or a little bit of lack of focus, maybe. Uh, maybe a, too much alcohol the night before, you know, what, whatever it was. Right. Yeah. But, they, but Aaron absolutely understood that people just generally don't want to fail. Right. And, and, and you always have to ask your question, you know, the question, Hey, is it a failure to lead or is it a failure to repair? And, and some, in, in most cases, it's a mixture of both, but the leader doesn't want to admit fault. Yeah, that's right. Sir, uh, as we close this out, um, on every, every we ask every guest the same question uh, mm-hmm. about their North Star. Here on the team, personal North Star that I have is curiosity above judgment, courage above all. It's kind of a mantra I live by, how I try to treat people, decisions I try to make. I've noticed that anybody who's had any bit of time in this life and have accomplished anything that matters typically has some guiding light and some North Star. Can you talk about yours a little bit? Yes. Um, my, mine might be a little bit different. Um, and mine goes directly back to my father, right? Again, um, incredibly blessed for the, for my father. Right. And, and, you know, he, he passed away in April and, um, but I'll never, I'll, I, so many takeaways from him, but with, with a, with a bent on leadership, mm-hmm. Um, my North star is the, he would ask the question, like if I got upset about something, my brother, or you know, we're going to go and do this. We're going to, you know, okay, you, you can do that. But wh- whose needs are, whose needs are being met when you do that? Right. And inevitably when you get all upset and you get all pissed off, you know, I'm going to go tell that person they gypped me or I'm going to, you know, tell that person, you know, they didn't do right by, well, who, whose needs are being met there. And, and when it comes to leadership and it comes to being a leader, the number one question I'd always ask myself, okay, you can do that, but whose needs are being met? And if the answer without a shadow of doubt were mine, then I knew that was the wrong approach. approach. Right. That was the wrong, that was the wrong way to go 
because it, it's, it's never about you, right? It's, a, it's about others and it's about the organization. Um, so it, for me, it does go back as a leader. Always ask yourself, hey, you're going to do this, but whose needs are being met? Right? Is it yours? Is it the Army's? Is it the organization? Or, you know, because the Army and the organization are two entirely different things. I yep. know you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's your personal needs are being met, that's, I mean, you, your needs are tangential to the organization's needs, right? The, in, in the leader business, you always got to take a look at, hey, is it, is it the organization? Is it the individual? Um, and I'll substitute Army in there, too. So the Army, the organization, the individual. If all three of those things line up, that's an easy decision. You don't need a leader to make it, right? Yeah. Um, but when other things, you know, when you have two out of three or one out of three, that's when a leader has to get involved. And it's not to say that the individual, right? We didn't make, we made a lot of decisions because of the good of the individual at the, at the impact of the organization. In some respects, the army, right? But, uh, but when it comes to leadership, that's the one question. My dad was so good at that, right? Hey, who, whose needs are being met here, son? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, 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 that was just a great gift he gave me, right? That, that particular North Star. Yeah, that's an incredible gift. And it's one that if you, if you play that out well enough, as often as you can, you do find that those are you under maybe someone thinking right now, well, who's taking care of me? Well, what you find or what at least I found in my life is if you can prioritize that as much as you can. Um, I still remember running around one time on wilderness and getting things ready, getting some final intel in, doing some things. And in my mind, I knew I had to go back and get my kit. The boys were getting ready. And I remember having to run down to the trucks real quick and I had to go make a beeline back to get my stuff and then go back down there. It just was one of those days where we were just trying to get everything ready for something going out that was kind of all of a sudden. And I remember the guys had brought all my stuff down and I didn't ask anybody to do it. I just... And to your point, I think you do find that folks will take care of you if you're doing it, right. which is the weird thing that does happen. And, and okay, second North Star. Maybe it's the sub. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know, but what the reason that happened, Joe, is because you were loyal down, right? Loyalty down is huge. That doesn't mean you always pat them on the back. That doesn't mean you always give them outstandings on their leader evaluations, right? Or their evaluations. That doesn't mean that you, that you, uh, you underwrite just poor performance, right? But loyalty down means you, you, they know if you're loyal down, they know you have their best interests at heart. They know you're going to stand up for them when it's right. They know you're going to discipline them when it's wrong and, and you endear and engender a response from them on so many different levels through that, through that loyalty down. Trust is not built from bottom up. Trust is built from top down. And if, if you're not, if you're not being loyal down in some cases, again, it could impact you personally. It could impact the organization, maybe in a, in a negative way in the short run. But if you want to harvest, if you want to grow, if you want to develop leaders and maintain and retain talent, you damn sure better be loyal down. Well said, sir. Sir, I want to just take a minute to just personally thank you. I mean, not only for your mentorship, your friendship, and your guidance over the years, but 
every guest I have on here, I'm just enamored with the life and the journey that they lived. But for you in particular, the reason this was a particularly special episode for me is that it had a direct and personal impact. And heck, even my, uh, my awesome and beautiful wife will often say how fortunate you were to have such incredible people from you to Aaron, to Tate, to the soldiers you serve with so early in your life. And we, I look back with those memories with such fondness because I'd like to think my parents put enough in me to end up turning out half decent, but at the same time, oh, I know <laughs> at the same time, I just, I want to just personally thank you for that mentorship and guidance and just always being there. I can tell you that your name is often talked about in circles that you may not hear. If you ever feel your ears turning red, that's why. And it's for good reason. <laughs> well, look, Joe, I, I, you know, it was a special organization because it was made up of special people. Right. And of which you were one. And, and, uh, the times we spent together, the good times and the bad times, the good times were really good. And the bad times were really, just really bad. Yeah. Hey, um, and the in-between times, most of them were really good. <laughs> That's right. We just didn't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, again, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I've never done one of these before and, um, I really, I really appreciate it. It, uh, it's always great to see you. And it was great to see you last uh, couple months ago. Well, no, it was last month in Austin. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we are going to see each other again soon. Yeah, I know it. I count on it, sir. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. Well, thank you all for listening. This is the Professionally Offensive Podcast. You can catch us on all platforms. JC out.